Hi, and welcome to One Great 150, our deep dive into 150 years of Winnipeg history. This is episode two. Mm -hmm. I'm Sabrina. I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer Nick. How's it going, everyone? Uh, Our episode today is all about Sarah Ballenden. Yeah. So where we left off last time is we have a little colony of Red River. Right. It's very small. It's trying to grow into a town of some kind, and there's a continual failing attempt to set up some kind of colonial power structure. Okay. So the Hudson's Bay Company, which is overseeing the land, is imposing governors. Mm -hmm. And the governor would come in and try and set up rules, and then no one would listen to the governor, and things (laughs) would go on exactly as they had been. (laughs) So that is... um, Roughly the state of things. Okay. Going like, into the 18th. 18- like roughly-ish how many people are in the area. Do you know? So as of 1821, there's about 12,400 residents Okay, in the area. So I can imagine being like one guy sent by the HPC to be like, here are the new rules. Here are my rules. Follow them. <laughs> and then everyone's like, no thanks. Yeah. Because also like no one's really staying there full time mm. for the most part. Okay. A lot of people are still like the Métis are leaving to go hunt. Right. So people come and they go and they visit other forts and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's not like a super steady base of people there to follow rules. Okay. So part of the issue for this in the eyes of the Hudson's Bay Company, though, is that there's a lot of intermarriage still going on between fur traders of the company and the indigenous women in the area. Shock horror. I uh, know. Well, they think it's undermining their authority. Ah, Shock okay. horror. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so for the most part, there's not really women here. Right. Because... The English aren't going to send... Well, European women. European women aren't. Yeah, there's not European women here. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So there's not, like, eligible women in the eyes of the Hudson's Bay Company. Right. But also, if you imagine Winnipeg or the area in, like, the, like, 1790s, most people weren't going to send, like, an educated, prim English woman kind of into the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Sure. Unlikely to happen. Yeah. So, uh... In 1830, the HBC's uh, current attempt at the governor, uh, George Simpson, does something kind of unheard of. He brings his wife to the Red River Colony. Okay. Uh, His wife, Frances, is also his first cousin. Great. (laughs) Just a fun little thing to chuck in there. That's how Uh, they did it back then. Yeah. So George Simpson wasn't, like, around a lot. Which is not really ideal for, like, managing a settlement that doesn't really listen in the first place. Right. Also weird to bring your wife and then just be like, all right, goodbye. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, he travels around a lot. And because he's gone so often, what Simpson wanted to do in Red River was create a sort of English social elite for Francis. So she wouldn't have to look at anyone that that wasn't white. This is a wild reason to, like, create a social strata. (laughs) And so his wife won't be... Lonely when he leaves her (laughs) in a strange new place. So there had been an earlier push to bring uh, British women over in British Columbia, Mm -hmm. also to curb the habit of marrying Indigenous and Métis women. Okay. It doesn't go super far, but after Simpson brings his wife, uh, some of the chief factors who are, like, in charge of the little fur trading posts Mm -hmm. bring their wives with them. So we have Anne Cochran and Mary Jones. Mm -hmm. They're the wives of two local pastors. They come, it's the Red River College, not... The one we have now is sure. a like religious school. Got it. Uh, that taught fur trader children. So the thing with George and Francis Simpson that is worth noting: Francis is not his first wife. Okay, but she is his first cousin. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. So Simpson had like a lot of other men with the HBC. 
married an indigenous woman. Oh, no. He had fathered several children, some in Britain to other women, and then some in Red River or in sort of North America as well. He was not a kind partner and was also staunchly against mixed race marriages. Okay. I don't... I would not move to a strange country for this man. (laughs) So he basically abandons his wife and his old family to marry Francis. Like his old wife in England? No. Or his old wife here? His old wife here. He he had a wife here, no wife in England. And apparently he was always on the hunt for a wife. Okay. But a white one. Right. So when he finds his first cousin, he marries her and like completely (laughs) abandons everyone else. Okay. So... In Simpson's eyes, even if a indigenous woman had married a high-ranking Hudson's Bay Company officer, they didn't have a place in respectable society. Mm. So Simpson enforces this at his residence in Red River. He enforces it? Yeah, so he really only surrounds his wife by white people. Okay. So despite being in an area that is predominantly Métis and indigenous, Francis Simpson doesn't really see any of them. She only sees uh, her servants. Okay. Who would have been, like, Métis people they had hired in the area. Right. Or, like, the children of fur traders. So she, everyone around her in her social strata is white. Okay. Which has to be intentional because almost no one here is. Right. And this creates a, like, sort of smaller social elite of white women in Red River. And the catch with all of this is that no matter what you do, Red River is really remote. Yeah. So if you come from a big fancy city with new trends and like dresses and you can get updates on like society and then you come to Red River where you don't have any of that. Right. They're like a year behind in a lot of trends. They don't really get news. I feel like Winnipeg is still a year behind in trends. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) Some things don't change. But then also like women aren't excluded from work in Red River. Yeah. They have to. Yeah, of course. Yeah carry a lot of like household labor um fur trade stuff as well it's not like an easy life even for like the wife of a hbc governor so george simpson brings francis over in about 1830 uh she goes back to london in 1833 oh no yeah. oh francis uh her health had apparently gotten worse after her pregnancy so she had just oh. gone and she never came back okay so uh it was a three-year social experiment <laughs> That didn't work. Yeah. But by the 1830s, we're also reaching a point where uh, the daughters of fur traders are reaching sort of adulthood or teenagehood. Mm -hmm. So they have the Red River Academy, or the Red River College, was established by Mary Jones in 1832. It's uh, run by British governesses that Uh they, like, ship in. So you're bringing in some more women. Oh, they're, like, bringing in, like, colonial educators. Yes. Interesting. Exactly. And the point of the school is to teach colonial skills, Mm -hmm. like um, sewing, music, dancing, the things that you would teach a woman at boarding school in England. So uh, Letitia Hargrave, who is a Scottish woman that married into the Hargrave family Mm -hmm. and was for a time the only white woman at York Factory, we have a lot of letters from her. Because you've read read her writing. I have, yeah, I've read some of her letters. She's an interesting lady. I mean, there are a lot of sort of cultural misunderstandings, I think. Yes. But she provides kind of a slightly different insight into the colony than, like, the men writing about, like, well, we sold this many pelts and -and so-and-so did this. Right. So what Hargrave says about the school 
is that they taught the ornamental as well as the youthful, useful branches of education. In short, an accomplished, well-bred lady capable of teaching music, drawing, etc., etc., of conciliating disposition and mild temper as we consider it very desirable that the young lady should have as little discourse with the native women in this country as possible. Oh, Letitia. Yep. Not happy with her. No, it doesn't really get a lot better. Mm. So... The focus of the school is to teach young women the proper way to behave, which is, of course, to say the colonial British way of behaving. Right. And there is sort of a side goal of separating these women from their mothers. Okay. Who are indigenous or Métis. Right. And they really try and cut that sort of kin network off. But a lot of fur traders are wanting to educate their children here. There's, I think kind of risk with sending them to England for school. Okay. Because it's easier to sort of fit in as a Métis child in Red River than it would be to, say, go to a school in London. Okay. So they want them to be educated, but they don't want to send them super far away. Right. I guess there are, like, logistical reasons also not yes, to of course. send all of your children <laughs> to England. Also a bad idea. So a lot of fur trade children come to the Red River Academy, including uh, a young Sarah McLeod, Mm-hmm. This is the daughter of Alexander Roderick McLeod and a unnamed indigenous woman, because why write that down? <sighs> uh, McLeod is one of eight children that the couple had together, and she was raised around like Mackenzie River, mostly. So when she arrives in Red River, it's uh, 1835. She is 17 years old. She is not accompanied by her family. She has a guardian, uh, John Stewart, who was on furlough in Red River. Hmm. And... Pretty quickly after arriving, she becomes a, like, accomplished student at the academy. She's pretty well-liked and, like, a noted beauty in town. But by the time uh, Sarah arrives, the structure of the school and the settlement is changing a little. Uh, Mary Lohman, who was the school's headmistress, retires to marry James Bird. Mm -hmm. And John McCallum is placed in charge of the school. Okay. Uh, McCallum cared so much about teaching at this school. Oh, in, in a good way? <laughs> okay. So he taught women things that weren't cooking and sewing. Okay. Like, there's notes yeah. from the fathers being like, they're learning actual useful skills. We don't really know what that is. Okay. It's not said. It's just they did things that weren't cooking. Sometimes they did an equation. But he did also try and explicitly ban indigenous and Métis mothers from seeing their children at the school unless the mothers had formally married their father. Oh, like, so like, like a church married wedding. in the church, right? Yeah, in the eyes of the church. So even Hargrave said that was a step too far. Yeah, and I mean, like in early fur trading days, get, getting married in the church in a lot of cases was just like not even possible. Logistically very difficult. Yeah. So um, a fun fact about the McCallum family. So John marries one of his students, Elizabeth Charles. She is the daughter of Chief Factor John Charles in 1836. And then McCallum's sister, Margaret, marries John Charles. So his sister marries his father-in-law. Oh, okay. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Just All a, right. Just a fun little family huh. detail to throw in there. So school's changing a little, and then on a broader scale, there is sort of an attempt at imposing uh, new rules in the Hudson's Bay Company. We're going to try oh, that again. Old thing okay. again. Yeah. <laughs> they try every now and again. Um, one of the issues is that um, when they appoint people in charge of different positions in the colony, they're not, like, merit-based. So you can get this job by just sucking up to the right guy. Right. And then they appoint, like, a drunken lunatic in charge of the area <laughs> who doesn't, like, know anyone or have any people skills. Just a guy. This comes up a lot in the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a lot of people in the area just found workarounds. 
just straight up ignored whatever government they tried to put in place. Mm -hmm. So this is what we're looking at for 1835 for Rupert's Land. Okay. Rupert's Land is a huge swath of land that's like northern Ontario, Nunavut, the prairies. It goes a pretty big distance. Within that is Assiniboia. And that's like a 50-mile radius, roughly, centered around the Forks and the Hudson's Bay Company Fort, uh, mm -hmm. Upper Fort Garry. Within Assiniboia is the Red River Colony. Okay. But they're also separated by a bunch of uh, little parishes, St. Patel, St. Norbert, small areas where churches are starting to pop up. Mm -hmm. But the like main settlement in Assiniboia is Red River. Right. Because that's where the heart of the Hudson's Bay operations is. So it's upper sort of ancestor of Winnipeg. Yes. So Upper Fort Garry is like the home for the justice system, the larger economy. It's where a lot of trade is being done. And it's also where the like chief factor for the area is. Uh, so in charge, we have Sir uh, George Simpson, who is the governor in, of Rupert's Land. And he then appoints Alexander Christie as the governor of Assiniboia. Mm -hmm. uh, the right reverend of the right reverend, the Bishop of Juliopolis, which is the Northwest. <laughs> okay. He's not really relevant to anything here. He's way up north. Somehow Juliopolis just made me laugh. Yeah, it got me too. It's a good name. Uh, the Reverend D.T. Jones, the Reverend William Cochran, who's the assistant chaplain, James Bird, Esquire, oh. with the Hudson's Bay Company, James Sutherland. There's a lot of Esquires. Everyone else is an Esquire going down this list. <laughs> okay. James Sutherland, W.H. Cook, John Pritchard, Robert Logan, Alexander Ross. Uh, John of, of Ross House? Is that? Of Ross House. Okay. Yeah. Uh, John McCollum, John Bunn, Andrew McDermott, uh, McDermott Avenue, and Cuthbert Grant, who is oh. the Warden of the Plains. So Ross is the sheriff at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, Bunn is the medical advisor. Andrew McDermott Dermott is like the head merchant. Okay. Yeah. Now, there is a flaw with this group of counselors, which even Alexander Ross noted. Uh, he pointed out that although the counselors thus appointed were undoubtedly the men of most influence in the settlement, yet their influence being all on one side, they did not carry the public feeling with them, and consequently they were not perhaps the fittest persons, all things considered, to legislate for the colony. Okay. What that means is that everyone on there is Protestant. Ah, okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yeah, so like the way we talk about it now, we'd say it's an English or a French divide, but... Mm -hmm. uh, the way to separate it then would have probably been religion. Yeah. Because people spoke English and French. And that'll come up in our next episode. Yes, right. Yes, bunch. of course. Yeah. So, yeah, it's that there's a lot of sort of British Protestants on the council ignoring um, the French Catholics, mm. the Métis, the indigenous too. So, like, there's missing a lot of voices. Right. And people knew that pretty early on. And some of the men on this council uh, were not popular. Okay. So Simpson, who had been in charge for a while at this point, had appointed uh, Adam Tom to be a judge in the area. Adam Tom was, like, notoriously anti-French. Okay. He had called for the state to execute uh, 750 patriots, all French-Canadian, after the Papineau Rebellion. Oh, my God. And they appointed this guy a judge? A judge in Red River, a predominantly French area. Oh, no. So people didn't like him. Mm -hmm. uh, Cuthbert Grant's role is also a little controversial on the council. He's sort of the biggest connection to the Métis that the council has. Um, and he had been considered for a long time to be kind of a Métis hero. He's the one involved in like the Battle at Seven Oaks and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, but with him getting involved with the colonial government, people began to see him as something of a sellout. 
Ah, uh, okay. So a lot of young Métis men are now putting stock in the leadership of Jean-Louis Riel and James Sinclair. Mm-hmm. So they're listening to them more than they are Cuthbert Grant at this point. And um, a trader at one point did note that Adam Tom was a judge for the sole benefit of the Hudson's Bay Company. <laughs> Jeez. And uh, this whole council worked for them. Um, Jean Tellier, who we talk about a lot, or whose book we use a we, lot, yeah, constantly, uh, The Northwest is Her Mother. So, r- talk- spoiler, who we talk to next episode. Yes. Um, describes the council as a system that rewarded those who provided the most profits, those who displayed open and continuous loyalty to the company, and those who were ambitious to advance within the corporation. The system punished those that were seen as disloyal, interested in personal profit, resistant to following orders, or unconcerned whether the company prospered or not. Okay. So they're not really, they're not there to support the area, they're there to support the company in the area. Right. I mean, it's it's a bizarre situation to have a corporation as the, like, ruling body of a huge area of land. It's or, or of any area of land, actually. It's very strange. Yeah. So what the council tries to do is implement justice to the area. Okay. And impose new rules and, yeah. like, have a sort of court of law in the proper English sure. sense. So it doesn't really go well. Mm-hmm. In the spring of 1836, they catch a man stealing. They sentence him to be flogged. And Alexander Ross would later say that the sight of a white man being flogged got the, cl- got the crowd um, a little riled up. And once the flogger had finished his job and left the little police circle, people began throwing mud at him and then chased him. Oh. The guy runs off. Yeah. And uh, stumbles headfirst into a hole in the ground. Oh. Oh, no. And then the police keep the guy in jail until the crowd dissipates. Okay. So, like, any attempt at actually being like, we're going to have, like, a punishment-based system doesn't work because they're just going to chase down the guy that implemented the justice. Right. So while all of this chaos is happening, there is a, a young clerk with the Hudson's Bay Company in town, John Ballenden, and he is attempting to woo Sarah McLeod. Okay. We don't know a whole lot about their courtship. It was brief. They get married within about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ballenden's a clerk with the company. He'd been working in York Factory in Fort Gary since around 1829. James Hargrave calls him a great scamp <laughs> in an 1835 <laughs> That's letter. cute. Yeah, I think it's meant jokingly. There's other accounts of him being like a diligent and hard worker. His contemporaries seem to really like him. He was just a little scamp sometimes. A little scamp. And he is quickly taken with Sarah McLeod. And they are married in the December of 1836. Okay. This is one of two marriages taking place in 1836 between Métis women and fur trade officials. Um, Betsy Charles um, of John Charles, we talked about him earlier, marries John McCallum, Mm -hmm. who's the head of the Red River Academy. Um, this marriage was partially encouraged probably by John Charles being rich. Uh, okay. <laughs> but from what we seem to know, for the Ballandins at least, it seemed to be a little more out of love. Okay. They liked each other nice. a lot from the sounds of it. So the Ballandins marriage is a big social event, like mm-hmm. talk of the town, and it sends a message that despite there being some British women in the colony, men would still see Métis women as a desirable marriage prospect. Right. So, like, are people talking about that? Like, is that already, like, out of favor as a thing that... Some people seemed a little surprised by it. Um, James Hargrave had a lot of strong opinions on interracial marriage. Okay. And even he was, like, Sarah Ballenden, like, Sarah McLeod is a good choice. Mm -hmm. Like, she makes sense. You should marry her. Good job. Interesting. So, the one thing here to note is that 
the woman did have to have the training to be a good wife, right? Okay. They yeah. had to, a good, like, Red River Academy educated woman sure. would be a desirable spouse. So uh, James Hargrave calls Balandin a delightful creature and noted that if they went to go visit his family in Orkney, he would assure his family that Sarah McLeod was a good woman and they shouldn't try anything. Oh. <laughs> he would, like, sponge over any kind of assumptions they would have about okay. Métis women. Okay. Yeah. So, um, Baladin's character is a pretty big thing here. Uh, Reverend Jones, who spoke about their wedding, felt the marriage reflected well on the academy mm. and showed women being raised from their former condition. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of, we sure separated this woman from all of her past. Yeah. Sure tore up those cultural roots and cut them off and yeah. threw them away. So William Cochran officiates the marriage. There is a 350-pound dowry, and John Stewart, her legal guardian, signs off on the marriage. They have a daughter within a year uh, named Anne Christie Baladin after the Métis wife of Governor Alexander Christie. And uh, Anne Christie is the daughter of a man named Thomas Thomas. Oh. <laughs> There's also a William Williams somewhere kicking around. Old naming conventions are yep, so fascinating. They are. So Alexander Christie oversees the construction of Lower Fort Gary, which had started in 1831. Mm -hmm. And then in 1840, it's a pretty big year for the Baladins. Uh, Alexander McLeod dies, so Sarah's father passes away. <laughs> Sorry, you just phrased that funny. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really big year for them. Her this father died. Yeah. <laughs> well, hold on. Significant events, yeah. I guess. Significant events. Uh, he leaves behind $5,000 in property for his wife and okay. his surviving seven children. And his marriage to his wife is only recognized posthumously. Hmm. Because they're not, I don't think, officially married in the church. Right. But it is a little unusual that even in his will, he recognizes his indigenous wife and his sort of out-of-wedlock children in his will and makes them official. Mm -hmm. um, as a point of comparison, only one of George Simpson's children, or illegitimate children, was recognized in his will. Hmm. And George Simpson had a few. Right. I mean, I feel like illegitimate is in, like... What, quotation marks here. What yeah. that means is that they were... They had the kid, but they weren't officially married within the eyes of the church. Yeah. So... But certainly within the eyes of, like, local custom. So they, they had, were married. Yeah. They were in a partnership of some... Yeah. Of they some were form. in a relationship. They were a family unit. Yeah. Of course. Uh, and then, also in 1840, John Baladin is transferred to Sault Ste. Marie in Upper Canada to, uh, Upper Canada to oversee a fort there. So he moves and he takes his family with. Mm-hmm. So, like, Baladin has not been in Red River long. She arrives five years earlier, gets married, and then just, like, leaves. Okay. And from what we know about her time in Sault Ste. Marie, she misses Red River. Oh. It's where her friends are. Yeah. And some of her, like, closest, I guess, like, friends of her father in the area and stuff. And ultimately, they're gone for eight years. Okay. And over these eight years, the colony begins to change. Again, there's newfound attempts at establishing a pecking order in the company. <laughs> Uh, Donald Finlayson's wife found this so stressful, she started to pretend to be ill to avoid going out. <laughs> it's a woman after my own heart. Yeah, very Alex move, yeah. I think. <laughs> I couldn't possibly go to this social function. Yeah. So Anne Christie comes back to the area in 1844 when uh, her husband Alexander is reappointed as governor. And then she campaigns for her daughter Margaret to marry John Black. Uh, some think they're surprised that John was caught in the quarter. Which I think means he's charmed by a non-white woman. Ah, okay. And uh, 
Margaret herself believed that she was as good as any white woman and far above the rest of the native ladies. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Margaret herself is yeah. the daughter of a Métis woman. Right. <laughs> and I think it speaks to the sort of insidious nature of, like, the Red River College and what's yeah. going on in the area at the time with this focus on, like, rising above your station. Right. And teaching you to be, like, a good English lady mm-hmm. that that can seep into someone and make them be like, I am better than you. Yeah, just yeah. internalized yeah. prejudice. So. Exactly, yeah. It's sad. It's very sad. And there's a lot of, this woman is a success despite of who she is. Yeah. Which is a very strange rhetoric and causes a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have uh, fur trade officers like James Bird, who would be widowed from their indigenous wives and then take English wives next, who weren't always nice to their indigenous stepchildren. Oh, no. Uh, and then there's disputes over trading rights going on at the same time. Uh, in the 1840s, we have James Sinclair and Andrew McDermott working together to sell furs and provisions and stuff independently. Okay. Uh, they also had a side business providing furnishings for people's homes hmm. and, like, people visiting the settlement. So McDermott did have a license to trade from the Hudson's Bay Company, but they revoke it in 1844 because they think that he's secretly smuggling furs across the American border. Oh, no. <laughs> uh <Uh-oh. laughs> So, uh, James Sinclair, who's working with at the time, and 22 other settlers write to Alexander Christie in 1845 with a long list of questions about their indigenous rights to trade. Oh, interesting. Uh, and what Christie tells them is that they are basically British at this point, and they should just follow the charter that's imposed. Hmm. Uh, what Sinclair does next is goes to England. Okay. He enlists uh, Alexander Kennedy of Vister for help, and then gets the letter to the government in England who don't do anything about it. Oh, that's that sucks to go all the way over there. Yeah, he tried. Uh, there is a whole thing where Sinclair does try to sue the company for underpaying him in the middle of this. And the company manages the court system. So, like, what happens is the company is like, we can't, we can't hear a case against ourselves. Oh, yeah, okay, yes, I see the, I see the problem here. Yeah, like when, when a corporation is your government... And you try and sue the corporation yeah. for underpaying you. They can't hear that case. Right. They, they don't have, like, a Supreme Court. No, there's like... no, like, impartial yeah. justice body. And this will cause problems down I, the line. I can see how that would cause problems, yes. <laughs> now, we don't really know what the Baladins do a whole lot in Sault Ste. Marie. There's not a lot of writings about uh, Sarah specifically. We know that John was a chief trader and a postmaster and justice of the peace in Upper Canada, so he keeps busy. And then he invests in the railroad with George Simpson and makes a lot of money on that. Nice. Good job. Good old railroad speculation. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless, he impresses enough of the right people to get a promotion to chief factor of the Lower Red River District, which is headquartered out of Lower Fort Gary. Okay. So So they get to come back. He gets to come back home. So after eight years away, they head home with four children in tow, Hmm. who are all quite young. And traveling at the time was always like a huge nightmare, conceptually. And then doing it with little kids seems like the worst thing possible. But making it worse, John suffers a stroke halfway through the trip home, <gasps> leaving a balanded to like help portage, help carry oh, the no. children. Um, John Murray recounts part of this trip a little bit later on, saying, On our voyage from Upper Canada, Mrs. Balandin was very careful and generally carried two children over the portages. And at the time of Mr. Balandin's illness, she carried two and Mr. Bannatine carried the other. Our provisions got out altogether and our sufferings were great. So they don't have food by no. the end of it. No. And 
her husband can't do anything yeah i mean i even feel like if you're not even if you're not having to do the portages like you're still having to walk yes yes and like ride in a red river cart which is not (laughs) or in a canoe i suppose i don't know i'm assuming they probably were taking a canoe if they're portaging that makes more sense but i I can probably not portaging in a cart (laughs) but a canoe either way it's not the most restful method of yeah exactly (laughs) no it sounds bad it's not like you can just like pass out in the back seat right yeah also, if you did think people would be kind of mad at you, not yeah. carrying your weight on this road trip. Yeah. So, upon arriving in Red River again, being John's wife puts Baladin into the position of the highest ranking woman in the colony. Okay. And she throws herself into this role. Like, she is organizing dinners, balls. She eats with the officers at the mess hall in Upper Fort Gary all the time. She has another daughter in 1949, who she names Frances Isabel Simpson Baladin, after uh, George Simpson's relatives. Huh. So his first cousin Francis is in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, Francis's christening was a s- evening of splendid entertainment with an abundance of champagne. Ah, uh, fun. So she throws a good party. Yeah. Which I think is a lot of what that role involves. Yeah, the, the like, hosting, wife, right? The yeah. Wife of the chief factor. Yeah, for sure. Um, a quote kicking around her, kicking around about her at the time was that she was destined to raise her whole cast above European ladies and the influence on the society there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to find a quote about her that's not tinged with just a little bit of racism. I, yeah, it's hard, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but the point of that is that Sarah herself is making everyone look so much better than the like European ladies that are arriving. Okay. And this becomes a problem for some of the white ladies that are arriving. Oh, are they like, they're they're annoyed that she's in a higher station? Is that yeah. the, the problem? And, like, the attitude towards Indigenous and Métis people by the 1850s, at least among uh, the government and the outsiders coming in to visit, were uh, bad. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of quotes about um, the Métis being, like, lazy and not working very hard. And, like, ah, how dare they exist in our space? Yeah. Which is typical for the time, but there's a real sort of tinge racism to everything going on that then bleeds into the Baladin's life. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one that calls the English settlers the legitimate Red Rivierans. But, like, by what logic? In what world? You've been there for, like, 20 years. (laughs) So, um, many of the new European women arriving to the colony come in expecting to find themselves, like, relatively high up on the social tier Mm -hmm. and then find out that Balandin is higher than them. Sure. And this rankles with a lot of them. So rumors start to swirl pretty instantly. Nothing Balandin did could go by without some criticism or comment. There were a lot of comments on how she was very friendly with the men in the settlement. Oh, she's like eating at the mess hall with them, you'd said. Yeah, and being and like, like, she's being a gracious host from what it sounds like. She's yeah. talking to people, she's asking questions, she's engaged, but she's being a little too friendly. Mm. Um, Mary Logan would claim that Balandin was the type of woman who must always have a sweetheart as well as a husband. Wow, rude. Yeah. And everyone is living in super close quarters at the fort, so there's lots of space for gossip. Mm, Yeah. Um, Joseph James Hargrave uh, describes the fort as, The people in the fort are a community of themselves. The constant changes of residence, occasions by necessity of their condition, render the officers of the company in Rupert's Land, as a class, somewhat careless about the accommodation afforded by their houses. Okay. So they're pretty lazy about cleaning up after their spaces, because they might leave. Yeah. But there are insulated little community within the fort walls. Like, people are bunking in the same buildings, mm-hmm. sharing dinner every day. 
their servants are all talking to each other all the time. Right. Which also causes some rumors to spread. I mean, I guess even just, like, by nature of this being a different way of living, you might be, you know, interacting with people more closely than you would in Europe, right? Of course, yeah. So, uh, when Sarah Ballenden begins to get a little friendly with uh, Captain Christopher Von Foss, people start to talk. Okay. Foss is a member of the Chelsea Pensioners. He's a group sent from the Royal Hospital in Chelsea with 42 women. There's 57 men. He's uh, William Caldwell, second in command. Caldwell is the governor of Assiniboia at this point in time. He's around from 1848 until 1856. And Foss is charming. Mm. Even John Balden remarked that he was an agreeable fellow who will become very popular. Okay. Um, Hargrave describes him as an Irishman with popular manners not much above 30. He married a widow lady with two girls who was separated from him. When he came here, he told his friends, Hargrave among others, that he had left Mrs. Foss at home till he saw how she would be situated in Red River. But it appears the lady has no intention of troubling him again and has soon left him after her marriage. Hmm. She then mentions a fondness for cards and gambling. Oh, okay. So he's a, an all-around rascal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this rascal turns up. Yeah. In Red River. Handsome rascal, no less. A handsome, right? Oh, no. <laughs> Or no, did they say he was handsome or just charming? Just charming. Okay. He has popular manners. Okay. We don't know if he was handsome or not. All right. I'm no gonna, one... I'm going to assume he was. <laughs> okay, fair. Um, so, Foss is a falling out with Caldwell at one point, and then doesn't hang out with him as much, but does spend a lot of time with the Baladins and the company officers in the mess hall. And that is where a bulk of the rumors come from, which is mostly from uh, Foss and Baladin being too friendly at meals, specifically. Hmm. Not helping matters is that uh, the Ballenden servant, Catherine Weingart, is a huge gossip who is telling everyone everything she thinks. Oh, no. And she is convinced that Ballenden is having an affair. Okay. So they arrive in 1848. By 1849, there is enough buy-in for these rumors that some felt Ballenden could have gotten divorced. Like, John would have had the grounds to divorce her if he wanted to. Just based on the rumors. Yes. Which he doesn't seek. But then there are two uh, newcomers to Red River that seek to really capitalize on these like hints of gossip. That they and can like, kind of... do you think do you think there's anything there or? I don't know because what I can tell is it seems like no, she had a, a friend and he right. was just like charming to talk to. She like ate lunch with him sometimes. Yeah. It okay. doesn't seem like anything else was going on. Yeah, but I mean, it's been you know, it's been years. It's not there's no real way it's to been know like for sure. Almost two hundred years. That's a pretty long time to yeah. And the thing is, we don't have, like, writing from Baladin. Sure. We have a couple from, like, the later, or the sort of mid-1850s. Mm-hmm. But, like, nothing from this period. So we have no idea what she's thinking. Right. Or what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Foss kind of vanishes. Okay. <laughs> He's gonna go do his rascally business somewhere else. He's gonna roam around. So, uh, in 1849, Anne Clouston, who was the daughter of a HBC agent, comes in Red River to... I'm sure ever to marry a company clerk, Augustus Edward Pelly. They're married at York Factory in uh, the August of 1849 and arrive in Red River in September. There's a couple people present from the colony at their wedding, which is Reverend David Anderson and his sister, Margaret Anderson, who was there to look after his kids and help run the school. Pelly had had a um, rough arrival to the colony. She'd expected it to be nicer than it was here. Aww. And she'd expected to be a little more important so she had packed to play the part oh no so she like brought all her nice dresses and stuff yeah so uh letitia hargrave makes fun of her packing (gasps) letitia (laughs) she says Anne brought an immense quality of quantity of finery five perfectly new bonnets besides that she 
uh, that which she wore on board, and scarves, and handkerchiefs, and shawls, as if she had been going to Calcutta. <laughs> so, when, so, like, maybe also not dressing for the weather, that Not dressing like. for the weather. Yeah. So, um, when people find out what Pelly has packed, people uh, make fun of her. <laughs> oh, I'd be so sad. <laughs> no, it's not. It'd be a rough arrival, for sure. Yeah. You're like, great, I didn't pack for the weather, and everyone <laughs> thinks I'm an idiot now. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Captain Foss was notorious for poking fun at her at the mess hall. Okay. And casting mocking glances at Ballandin at uh, Pelly's expense. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I see you're starting to put some pieces together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pelly starts to uh, feign illness, and her husband starts to shun the Ballandins. Hmm. And then, to make things worse, Pelly and her husband begin to do the same. So Anne Pelly goes to Major William Caldwell, the governor of Zinaboya, to tell him what's going on. And basically, like, she's a bad person. Hmm. Okay. But Caldwell didn't do much of this. He liked John Ballenden, and he was, at this point, popular as chief factor. So it was like, I'll just let John do his thing. People yeah. like him. Uh, Caldwell's not popular. Okay. So it, I, I can see why he wouldn't want to get involved uh, and mess yeah. anything else up. <laughs> and... I mean, also, you know, it kind of seems like, I don't know, if there is some kind of affair going on, like, that seems mostly like John's B- business, business, right? Yeah, you would think, but I guess when you're trying to impose rules, social yeah. and otherwise, on a colony, you can't have your chief factor engaged in, like, a scandal, right? Right. Regardless, not much happens. And then John Ballenden's also just, like, busy doing other stuff. 1849's a busy year. He charges uh, Pierre Guillaume Sawyer. Sawyer, and three others are violating HPC charter by trading in furs illicitly. Okay. They're big on smuggling furs to the Americans. Ah, uh, yeah. And this goes to trial hmm. with the important kicker that all of the judges were involved with the HPC. I to mean, be a judge in Red River, you well, have to... Well, like, who else would it be? So there's no neutral party. Yeah. And um, the Hudson's Bay Company had some fun little uh, trial traditions where they would like to set things... On days where Catholic Métis could not be present. <gasps> so, the trial of this French Métis man is set on May 17th, 1849 on Ascension Day. Which is a Catholic holiday. And they assume that everyone would just be at Mass. Okay. And wouldn't make it to the like, trial across the river. They're already gonna win. The, <laughs> the jury's stacked. Right. So this was a pattern of behavior that people recognized. In the Sunday before this trial to take place, uh, Jean-Louis Riel stands up mm-hmm. at church in front of everyone and reads a letter encouraging everyone to go protest the company monopoly and convinces the priest to hold an early mass the following week. Oh, wow. Okay. So then the next week they have an early mass. Should we say quickly who Jean-Louis Riel is? He's Louis Riel's dad. Yeah. <laughs> in case people didn't figure it out from the Yeah. Name. The almost identical names. Yeah. <laughs> So, Riel is one of the ones that have been uh, sort of encouraging and leading the Métis in Red River at the time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what happens is Riel and Sinclair have organized around 400 armed Métis men oh, wow. to cross the river from St. Boniface. Okay. Because rec- they take a boat yeah. to Upper Fort Gary and they surround the courthouse the day of the trial. <gasps> Sinclair then appoints himself Sawyer's lawyer. Okay. And comes in with a list of grievances for the court. Wow. Which is free trade and enter restrictions on American imports. Uh an appointment of 12 Métis members of the Council of Assiniboia, and the removal of Adam Tom from the settlement, hmm. and then appointing a new bilingual court reporter in his place. Um, he is told that a lot of those are outside of the purview of the trial. Okay. 
mean, arguably most of them. Okay, I do see that. So he does, he steps back, but he's made his point. Yeah. Regardless, he is Sawyer's lawyer. And what he does is he replaces the jury with um, French people. Okay. So they get a sort of more even jury than there would have been before. And then Sawyer comes on to testify that he had actually only traded really with other Métis people, which he had been told was permitted with the company oh. and was in his, it was part of his like indigenous rights to trade. Right. So the jury does find him guilty because they're all mostly company men. Sure. But they recommend mercy. And John Ballenden, I think, aware that there are um, 400 armed well, men outside. How could he not be? I mean, <laughs> he is the... Uh, he looked out a window. Yeah. Uh, Ballenden's the acting prosecutor. And he seizes that. And he drops the charges against the other men. Gives Sawyer back his furs. Oh, okay. And in the process proves that the Hudson's Bay Company can't really do anything. Yeah. I mean, right? they, they don't have the manpower, right? Yeah. So the um, end to this is that um, Jean-Louis Riel picks up Sawyer and hefts him out of the courthouse on his shoulders. <laughs> and they all go back to St. Boniface and have a big celebration. Great. It's a real, like, out-of-a-lifetime movie ending yeah. where, like, it freeze-frames him <laughs> coming out of the courthouse. And out of this, uh, Caldwell comes out looking real bad. Uh, yeah. Because he is the governor at the time, and he doesn't do much about the sort of gaggle of armed men that have gathered in the fort that he's supposedly receiving. Right. I mean, like... He can't... He doesn't it, have the men to no, do anything. No, I mean, it, like, if anything, I think it could have gone a lot worse. Yes. So, like, all it's a victory by all accounts. Yeah. And of note is that at that mass... Or at the mass where Riel convinces everyone to do this, there's a little five-year-old Louis Riel attending church Aww. that day. <laughs> so, there's this sort of, like, Métis rights thing going on that Ballenden's overseeing. Caldwell's losing some power in the colony and a lot of respect for the people in the settlement at the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, like he's just fed up? Uh, no, he, like, people are fed oh, up with him. Oh, they're fed up with him. I see. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, Adam Tom is still around and no one likes him. Mm -hmm. So there's bigger things going on. But then, in 1850, John Ballenden goes to Fort Alexander, which is near us at King First Nation. So. Okay. Close-ish to Graham Beach. Mm -hmm. To visit George Simpson, there was a um, rare visit from Simpson for, like, a sort of big council meeting. So all of the officials are gone. Uh, and the moment John leaves, he will take action against his wife. Oh. Pelly also goes up there to talk to Simpson about the scandal. Wow. Which I feel like... Like tattling to the governor about a... Affair. A, a marital dispute, right? Like two people eating lunch together. Yeah. So, William Caldwell forbids his wife from interacting with Sarah. The Cochrans tell some of Baladin's friends to avoid her. Wow. The Cochrans taught at the school she attended. They were her teachers. Oh, no. Oh, that sucks. It's very sad. Um, Margaret Anderson and the bishop wouldn't see her. Margaret Black began to shun her. Wow. So, like, a huge chunk of the community and the people within her, like, social circle just cut her off instantly. Yeah. She does have supporters in town. She goes to go stay with Adam Tom, who is a family friend. Mm-hmm. They seem to get along, and there's some nice anecdotes about Tom and their relationship, but okay. he seems to have been not widely liked outside of this very okay. small pocket of friendship. Yeah, I mean, like, her social currency is effectively all that she has. Right, and it's just gone. Yeah. So she goes to Tom and asks for his help to clear her name, because he's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, she gets a letter from her servant denying any knowledge of an affair, and then um, Tom has to go talk to john and convince him that things are okay because he i think got a little worried about the rumors but okay tom convinced him all as well 
and it seemed like things were going to fade away. Except, uh, Mr. Black comes on, so Margaret Black's husband, with a sworn letter from John and Margaret Davidson swearing to an affair between Baladin and Foss. Hmm. Uh, John Davidson is a mess cook at the fort, okay. and he had married Margaret in 1949, and they had bumped into some issues when uh, Davidson was expected to do household duties, and I'm assuming the issue is that she was doing household chores for an indigenous woman. Ah, okay. So she sort of bristles at being told what to do and, like, doing labor that's below her. Yeah. And after this, John tries to settle things privately, but seems to have failed. So Captain Foss takes action and files a defamation suit against oh, wow. Pelly the Davidsons in At First Black, but that's dropped. And his stated intention is to clear the reputation of a lady. Hmm. So Bounden might not have done this because he was ill. He'd had a stroke like two years before. Yeah. Or he was worried about the ramifications of getting involved so quickly after the Sawyer trial had just finished. Yeah. I guess also, you know, he's he's you know, sort of in charge in, in some he way. He can't He's... sue his, like, subordinates, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. So, it seems like Foss might have asked Baladin for permission to start the case, and he agreed, so. Mm. Uh, this does cause some rumors, too, in that um, it was unusual for a man not married to a woman to defend her so strongly. Okay. Regardless, the trial begins on July 16th, 1850, and throws the whole colony into turmoil. Yeah. And I thought it would be fun to do a dramatic reading okay. of our little testimonies here. It's a fun little glimpse into what people were, like, saying at the time. Yeah. Um, before we get into this, I want to say um, the people who were interviewed at the trial were clearly aware of all of the rumors. So things are just kind of brought up in no context. Okay. <laughs> for someone that's like, I don't know any of these people. Yeah. And they're talking about, like, a German girl who's locked away and, like... <laughs> I remember you telling me about the German girl whose identity you could not discover. It's Catherine Weingart. Oh, you found her. They mentioned her on the third day by name. Okay. <laughs> and then there's also other uh, personal feuds bleeding into this. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to be presenting these in the order that they were originally read because that would be very confusing. Okay. And I'm cutting out some of the ones that aren't relevant and we're not going to do the full like three page testimonies from some people. We're not doing the entire trial. <laughs> You know what? If we had the time, I would, but that seems insane. So a lot of the stories of the trial revolve around a dinner party held at the Harriet's place, or stories told by Catherine Weingart. There's some additional issue about them, like, not paying Davidson, or Davidson owing people money. Okay. That, like, isn't super relevant. Like, why are the Davidsons even here? <laughs> <laughs> they have close to no stake in this. Yeah. So I've omitted a lot of what's going on with that. Okay. Because I don't know if you want to hear if, like, Captain Foss owed Davidson this much money from a card game one time. Yeah. It's not super <laughs> relevant. So here are the government officials present at the trial. There's Major Caldwell, mm -hmm. Adam Tom, who is the court recorder, uh, James Bird, John Bunn, Andrew McDermott, and Cuthbert Grant. Okay. And there is a jury made up of Donald Gunn, Thomas Thomas, Thomas Southwaite, Richard Stevens... James Swain, John Vincent, Robert Sanderson, Thomas Logan, Donald Murray, Roderick Sutherland, Samuel Cook, and Donald McKenzie. So, like, mostly just some randos mm -hmm. that were all involved with the Hudson's Bay Company in some order, or in some capacity. So, I sent you and Nick uh, yes. some of the testimonies. I've assigned you characters. I see that. <laughs> 
funny if you're watching this on YouTube. I'm just an ominous voice on the <laughs> camera right yeah, now. Yeah, Nick exists kind of like incorporeally to the rest of us. <laughs> okay, Alex, you're first. So I will say who everyone is. Okay. okay. So the first that I've included here is Margaret Black. She's the wife of John Black, who is a, a clerk. She is the daughter of Governor Alexander Christie. And you'll recall that the Baladins named their daughter Anne after Margaret's mother. Yeah. So okay. there's like a lot of family connections to this one. Right. So this is Margaret. Okay. It's all you, Alex. Do I, what, what kind of character should I give? Oh, to, is it oh all... free reign. <laughs> okay. That Mrs. Pelly had heard that Mrs. Ballenden was often seen going to Captain Foss's quarters. The first time I saw Mrs. Pelly, she told me about it. But I had heard it before from Mrs. Cochran. I heard that they, Captain Foss and Mrs. Ballenden, were too intimate. And that the last child Mr. Ballenden had was Captain Foss's. When she told me these things, I cannot say if she was pleased. Mrs. Pelly did not state that she had direct confrontation or direct conversation with the German girl, but she believed it herself, that it had appeared as though she was bribed. I thought that Mr. Ballenden would not return from Fort Alexander if he heard those reports. Mr. and Mrs. Ballenden often referred to the Pellys, keeping so much aloof from them. Every time I saw them, sometimes in anger and sometimes with regret. I have heard reports injurious to the character of Mrs. Ballenden from others besides Mrs. Cochran. Mrs. Morris told me something that she had got from Mrs. Brown, who had heard it from the German girl. I have heard Mrs. Logan state that Mrs. Ballenden was a woman that, was always, that must always have a sweetheart as well as a husband. She told me this the first year that Mr. Ballenden was here. I remember Mrs. Ballenden showed herself anxious to get Captain Foss back at the table again. At Mr. Harriet's dinner in this room, I remember Mrs. Ballenden adventing herself twice. Once with Miss Prudence, now Mrs. Thomas Sinclair, and once alone, she was half an hour absent the second time. And then um, Mrs. Cochran? Yeah, so Mrs. Cochran is the wife of William Cochran. Uh, you might remember uh, Cochran from our... Uh, Pegwis episode because he's one of the guys that tries to convert Pegwis and everyone else in the colony. Okay. And also the ones that are involved with the school in No Anne are Sarah in that capacity. Okay. Saw you, Nick. Here's my Mrs. Caldwell or Mrs. Cochran impression. The first time I saw anything <laughs> was at Major Caldwell's party. I don't know why she's a Southern Belle. Why not? Uh, I love it. The behavior of Mr. Mrs. Ballenden and Captain Foss was indecorous <laughs> oh yeah the other fun thing is they use a lot of words that people don't use anymore <laughs> indecorous uh they were in a corner by themselves lifting toys or toying together toys. at another time i went to see mrs ballenden and the door of the room was closed not locked i on entering the room saw mrs ballenden and captain foss on the sofa together i have charged my daughters never to visit them there again okay so next up is william lane we don't know a whole lot about him he was a clerk at the fort at the time uh he and the baladins ate together pretty often and they actually continued to write to each other later on so william lane's letters are the only way we have any of sarah's writings later on oh. so they stay friends for a while after this okay this is william lane he was at the dinner party given by Mr. Harriet, and was about one of the last to leave the place. I left in company with Mr. and Mrs. Ballenden, Mr. Bunn, and Mr. Grand. I went to Mr. Ballenden's house. I remained there about a quarter an hour. 
It was intended that I should have stayed in the room next to Mr. Harriet's, but it being occupied, I went to the office. I asked Mr. Pelly um, to give to... me give me a shakedown. It's a makeshift bed. Got it. <laughs> he replied that his bed was large and that we could both sleep together. Assur- <laughs> it's turning homoerotic, okay. <laughs> Um, a short time after we were in bed, we heard the sound of a great many voices and the sound of doors opening and shutting. After a few minutes, Mr. Pelly got up out of the bed and went to the office window and returned in a short time to bed and said he saw a person going from Mrs. Ballenden's house to Captain Foss's. Mr. Pelly imagined this person to be Mrs. Ballenden or the German girl. I did not get out of bed on the occasion, nor did I see the person alluded to by Mr. Pelly. There was about five minutes elapsed while Mr. Pelly was at the window, and about ten from the sound of the voices. The night was cold and dark. I do not think anyone could distinguish the difference of person on such a night. I am not sure, but do not think I made any observations. So next we have uh, Major Caldwell coming in to testify. This is the man who is slowly losing the respect of everyone in the colony. <laughs> oh, Mr. Pelly told me that on the day... <laughs> Do you have one accent? <laughs> yeah, it's a southern gentleman now. All right. <laughs> I'll work through them. Yeah, okay. Let's do it. Oh, Mr. Pelly told me that on the day Mr. Harriet gave his dinner party, he saw on the evening of that day a woman he supposed to be Mrs. Ballenden pass into Captain Foss's apartments. At about a quarter of an hour afterwards, she returned, and that Mr. Lane, who was with him, saw her likewise, and a conversation that took place between them, where they agreed that it was no business of theirs. <laughs> Mr. Pelly told me likewise that he was once in the room with Mrs. Ballenden when she put her hand on his thigh with a very significant look. He also said that Captain Foss had told him that Mrs. Ballenden had made advances towards him. (laughs) (laughs) So next we have uh, Dr. Bunn being sworn in. So he is a Métis doctor in the settlement who's pretty involved in uh, both the admin of the colony and local infrastructure. He's like designing roads (laughs) in his spare time. Uh, He won a prize for best cheese. In 1847. <laughs> You're going to say best road. I was like, no. oh, cool. No, okay. No, <laughs> best cheese. Much better. And he was a doctor for a lot of people in the colony, including the Ballandins. Okay. He's also one of their friends. He was at the dinner party given by Mr. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're all do- Okay, yeah. Hell yeah. Let's do it. But remembered nothing particular there. Does not know at that hour he retired from it, but knows it was early, as he had attended to play cards with Captain Foss. I have frequently met Captain Foss's at Mrs. Ballandin's house and have never seen Captain Foss and Mrs. Ballenden in any critical situation, nor did I ever observe any bad behavior in her company. In reference to Mr. Cochrane's statement, the inference there hinted at concern in that affair. I can state that the greater last year, it was impossible for her to have done so. Mrs. Ballenden's health both before and after her pregnancy was bad. She was in a state of excitement sometimes, and at other times depression of spirits. I do not believe any of these reports. So I'm going to jump in and point out that the structure of these testimonies in the writing starts in third person, where it's like, he said this, and then after about three sentences, it always goes to, I said this. (laughs) Okay. They're all set up like that. It's Hmm. very strange. So, okay, next up is Nathaniel Logan. He is a clerk for John Baladin and the apprentice postmaster in Red River. 
He's the son of Robert and Mary Logan. Robert's uh, kicking around during the sort of like Selkirk settler period and makes a lot of money off of land. Okay. So he's also kind of like a friend of the Ballandins. I am the confidential clerk to Mr. Ballandin. I've never seen Captain Foss in an equivocal situation with Mrs. Ballandin. I have heard Mr. Pelly often speak against Captain Foss. He was all doings, all along doing so, during some conversation at the table one day. Captain Foss remarked to Mrs. Ballandin, Have you become one of those interesting invalids? <laughs> Mr. Pelly was in a great rage at it. <laughs> Did not hear... Mrs. Pelly say on that remark, had she been a man, she could have hurled a tumbler at Captain Foss's head. I heard Mrs. Pelly say she would hold up 200 pounds to Captain Foss's <laughs> nose and say, don't you wish you may get it? <laughs> what? So there's a lot of unrelated personal beef okay. going on so i think mrs belly and uh, mrs belly mrs pelly and captain foss obviously have some kind of dispute dispute and i think the comment about becoming an interesting invalid might have been about mrs pelly faking <gasps> sick faking sick so he was saying to to balandin because she he, was sick too she had, okay. she was recovering from so pregnancy so he was joking with her like oh are you like becoming like yeah. mrs pelly is always pretending she's sick i think that's what's happening oh that's because that would explain why mr pelly gets so mad and right. mrs pelly's like i would have thrown a tumbler at his head and asked him if he didn't he wish he had <laughs> money, money. <laughs> okay uh, next up is John Ballenden. All right. I'll give him a normal voice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, well what a take. Um, that on the evening of Mr. Harriet's birthday party, or dinner party. I <laughs> know. Jumped to birthday party. Got a party hat on. Okay, I'm going to start that over. That on the evening of Mr. Harriet's dinner party, Mr. Grant rather insisted on having a bottle of rum, having none in the house. Mrs. Ballenden went to the cellar with Madame Legault. And for uh, for some time, and then Mr. Grant and the other gentleman retired. I think they were Mr. Grant, Mr. Lane, Mr. Smith, and Mr. Pelly. I that night left with my wife, as Mr. and Mrs. Black had come up. I had given my room to them and had a shakedown for Mr. Bunn's son, while Mr. and Mrs. Christie occupied the lower bedroom. I went up to my room and was there some time and heard a noise, uh, where Mr. Grant and Mr. Smith was. I put on my clock and went to see them and warned them not to make a noise as Major Caldwell might be disturbed by it. I remained there for ten minutes to half an hour, came back again, found my wife undressing and nearly in bed. Mr. Pelly spoke to me of, about the behavior of Captain Foss. I have never observed anything in his behavior. Captain Foss requested that an investigation should be made of what Mr. Pelly has said. Um, Mr. Pelly was appointed to Pemina and Mr. Setter to the Manitoba Lake, but on my own responsibility, I changed them. The day after Mr. Pelly moved his complaint forward, Mrs. Ballenden proposed that we should have a separate mess, to which was agreed. I there called down Dr. Cowan and requested him to attend upon Mr. Pelly, as he had an extraordinary complaint, and I did not think he was quite sound. What follows in Ballenden's testimony is... That uh, Mr. Pelly tells Ballandin and Cohen two conflicting stories about who was saying what. Like, it, uh, to Cohen, he's saying, oh, Sarah told me this. But okay. to Ballandin, is like, oh, Captain Foss told me this. Oh. So, like, the stories aren't quite lining up. Right. 
Next up is uh, Adam Tom, our notorious anti-French judge. <laughs> so I can't do a French accent if you're anti-French. He'll he'll haunt you probably. <laughs> Unless it was like a mocking French accent that he was doing in court for some reason. <laughs> Mr. Ballenden was so completely prostrated by the by the blow that the defendants had inflicted that he actually provided an apology to me to ask his wife on the subject. I had then some conversation with Mr. Ballenden in which he stated two circumstances that seemed to stagger himself. One was that a sum of money he left with her on his departure for Fort Alexander of 30 shillings, which he could nowhere find the other was that during her last pregnancy she had frequently proposed to separate from him i went to my house where fortunately mrs ballenden had the day before taken shelter i desired mrs tom to send for her i asked her have you any money she smiled she afterwards told me she saw more anxiety in my face than i was aware of <laughs> she said perhaps it Perhaps it I have it in my work box, or perhaps I have it here. I will go up and look. She immediately returned with a purse. I counted a one-pound note, a five-shilling note, five-half-crown, a shilling, and a sixpence, explaining at the same time that the purse was the identical purse left by Mr. Ballenden at his departure. I playfully pocketed the purse and said, Madam... You will never see this again. <laughs> I then asked her what induced her to think of running away with Mr. Ballenden during your during her pregnant your pregnancy. She immediately answered, "Did he not tell you? I always have done so since the second child, and the last time I said so to Doctor Bun as well as himself." Wow. <laughs> And then Tom reads some depositions that are not provided. Yeah, because he was trying to uh, prove Ballenden's innocence. He gets sworn statements from the servant and stuff that he hands to the court but aren't available. Okay. Interesting. He does also, he threatens to steal the money from the Ballendens. That's the, you will never see this again. Like, like jokingly? Yes. Or, <laughs> that's, a, that's a weird joke. <laughs> also, why is he telling them about it? He thought he was funny, I guess. Okay. Now, our final one is uh, Sarah Ballenden herself. Okay. It's the first time we've properly heard from her. Yes. On one occasion, Mr. Pelly came into my room and in the course of a conversation said that he had known what society he was in. He would not... Um, okay, let me start again. <laughs> On one occasion, Mr. Pelly came into my room and in the course of conversation said that had he known what society he was in, he would not have entered into the engagement he had done with the intended, Mrs. Pelly. And... If she did not come out, it is a marriage that will never take place. We went on talking about the company's business. I told Mr. Pelly that I did not trouble my head with it. I got up and began to walk up and down in my room, and occasionally to stand at my bedroom door to listen. I asked Mr. Pelly what was the appearance of the intended Mrs. Pelly. He said, she was twice my size and half my height. Now when I see you, I can account for it, why people speak ill of you. He continued to say that he supposed I had been generally admired, and that was the cause of the jealousy. The conversation was carried on, but I cannot remember all of it. The next day, Mr. Harriet came up to me and said he wished to speak to me as a friend. He stated that he had known Mr. Pelly for years, and to be on my guard how I conducted myself towards him. He said, Do you know Mr. Pelly is a very vain young man? Was he here the last evening? Do you know what was said of you? Mr. Pelly told me, that very little on your part would make him run, uh, would make him to run away with you. 
I took the first opportunity of expressing my opinion of him to himself and of his behavior and what I thought of him and that I had heard of his ways and that I should never look on him in any other way than that I had adopted to treat him in. Very often he used to apply to me for medicine and I have frequently waited out for him and have continued that line of conduct towards him, which I had marked out ever since. So Mr. Pelly yes. is like badmouthing his wife to Sarah. Yes. And Sarah has heard from someone else that Mr. Pelly wants to run away with her. Yeah. Well, also, that might have been Pelly hitting on her. It sounds, like, yeah. Like, what happened is that Pelly comes to flirt with Ballandin, is rejected, hates his wife, incidentally. And I can see why his wife might not be thrilled with her then. Yeah. Or why he might then try and push these rumors yeah. also. Yeah. Also, did there he call, is... Did he call his wife fat? Yes. He calls his wife fat. Oh, <laughs> That's rude. Um, I have to imagine, too, that, like, he hadn't told his wife about this, because why would you say that? And then they're in court that day when Balanding comes oh, up. Oh, no. <laughs> and it's like, your husband tried to seduce me and insulted your appearance. Yeah. It's funny, the first few of these are, like... Just like fully hearsay. Hey, there's right. like, I heard that someone else heard that someone, that the German girl said. <laughs> they haven't talked to the German girl directly. Yeah. So Catherine Weingart had left, I think, to go back to Germany. Okay. By the time this trial takes place. And she had been sent off with like some nice gifts as thanks. Mm -hmm. So there were some theories that that was a bribe. Right. But part of uh, Baladin's testimony is like, no, I gave her a gift to thank her for working for my family. Yeah. Um, okay, what's the bit about going away during the pregnancy? Like, that, was... that uh, she might leave him? Yeah. So it seems like what happened is that Baladin was just, like, pregnant, and it was making her, like, sick and affecting her mentally. Right. So every time she gets pregnant, she threatens to leave her husband. Ah, uh, okay. Because uh, Bun also testifies that when she was pregnant, she was in states of, like, a states of great excitement, right? Right. And at other times, depression of spirits. Yeah. Okay. So it's just she has rough pregnancies. Right. So they're saying, like, um, so her accusers are saying, like, oh, she kept threatening to leave her husband. And she's yeah. like, no, I was just, like, pregnant and hormonal. Yeah. I do that every time. Yeah. <laughs> I, it would be very confusing to be like, why do you keep threatening to leave your husband? And her being like, oh, he didn't tell you I do that every time. <laughs> every time I get pregnant. <laughs> and I keep having kids. Yeah. Well, you know, not it's much hard of a choice. Yeah, then. but just like that has to be miserable to be like pregnant and depressed. Everyone in town seems to hate you for mysterious and nefarious People are reasons. Spreading weird rumors about you. Yeah, uh, and someone like sa someone here says that one of the children is supposedly Captain Foss's. Yes, that one goes around a little bit. There's a couple other like testimonies about that rumor and who started it yeah and no one will admit to being the first one to say it oh they're all like well i heard it from someone but i didn't say it first it's the german girl <laughs> everyone blames the german girl someone is like ah but she's locked away somewhere <laughs> she's just like in in, in captivity where in europe <laughs> <laughs> she just left um so it sounds like the kind of central accusations here are like um mr pelly saw Sarah going to Captain Foss's quarters, which no one else saw. Yep. And someone else, I forget who, saw her on a sofa with him. Yeah. 
There is another story that was also one of Pelly's creations that um, Baladin would dress up in Catherine Weingart's clothing and sneak away. It sounds like maybe Foss was having an affair with the German girl. <laughs> you know, probably. Because, like, the, they're, like... The other guy was saying, like, oh, yeah, there was, like, someone walking. I couldn't tell who it was. Yeah. It could have been Sarah or it could have been the German girl. <laughs> but also, at one point, someone asked, what does Sarah look like and what does the German girl look like? And you find out there's a pretty significant oh. height difference. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe from, like, a cross. A... From, like, a second story looking down at yeah. night. Sure. Yeah. But, like, maybe she wasn't wearing her clothes. <laughs> yeah. And there was a whole other thing, like, the Davidsons testify that, like, the wife was locked in a room, and Sarah had to be like, no. <laughs> the door was locked. Right. But she had other ways to get out. We weren't locking her out of the house. So, the whole place has been thrown into this kind of state of uproar or over... Like, nothing. Basically, this one guy who hit on her was rejected. And then was like, I'm gonna ruin her life. Yeah. Um, there was a different... I would call it, like, a B-plot in the trial about a pemmican letter. Okay. It's called the pemmican letter. I do not know what it is. No secondary sources mention it, I assume, because it doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And it's not, like, super relevant overall. But uh, Andrew Graham um, Balladin Bannatyne, who was Sarah and John's nephew. So A.G.V. Bannatyne, who Bannatyne is named for in the city. Sure. Wants to defend his aunt and is trying to track down this letter. Okay. And he is going around trying to find it. And he is like, he, I think, I can't remember who has it, but one woman does it. He goes to her house and demands it. And she says like, no, not any of you. Get on your knees and beg. <laughs> and he's like, and I didn't do that. Well, okay. <laughs> but what he does do is find her husband and is like, I need that letter. Yeah. <laughs> Make your wife give it to me. Do we have any idea what the contents of this letter no, are? No, absolutely not. Just something that would somehow absolve her? Yeah. Well, no, it seems to, it's unclear what's in it because... Like, why does he want it so bad then? Because everyone's talking about the letters that are being sent from Balandin to Foss. Oh, I see. So they're like, oh, this is like so, a love letter. And he's like, no, it's just about pemmican. Yeah, like a subset of the accusations that they've been smuggling letters to each other. Okay. But um, Bannatyne has been carrying letters to the both of them. And is like, I've read them. They're fine. Right. But no one can produce the letters. No one knows what's in them. They're just like, oh, it's nefarious. Yeah. <laughs> and... At one point, Bannatyne gets into a fight with someone's husband. Okay. I think he gets into a fight with Davidson. Yeah. Because he insults Davidson's wife. And Davidson comes storming out of the house up to Bannatyne and goes, Why did you say those things to my wife, which you have said? <laughs> yeah. Which is one way to say that. Yeah. So there's like a separate feud going on between Bannatyne and like a bunch of other people. Okay. That's not related at all, but... Bannatyne gives a long testimony yeah. <laughs> about, like, here's everyone that's annoyed me in my, like, quest to avenge my aunt, which is very nice. Um, the other thing about the sofa, the, like, sofa incident, is that a couple of people are like, yeah, we've been to, like, we were there that same day. They were in the same room, not on the same sofa. Foss was there to ask about taking one of her daughters to a ball. Oh, okay. Or to, like, ask about hosting a party. Yeah. So, like, they were having a conversation about normal, like, social life they were in a corner by themselves lifting toys or toying together i don't know what that means <laughs> i'm assuming it's a euphemism but i can't figure it out okay um then the other one yeah the sofa thing so the door of the room was closed not locked um i've on entering the room saw mrs valenden and captain foss on the sofa together 
I have charged my daughters never to visit them there again. So it sounds like what she saw was something, like, truly, like, de- like depraved. Yeah. Because she's, like, opens the door, sees them on a sofa. And then, whew, close Like, the- close yeah. the door and she's, like, never go there. Yeah. So, like, she's definitely, she doesn't say it, but she's- But she's in- insinuating She's something. insinuating that they were just, like, not just, like, sitting. Yeah. There's a lot of innuendo and insinuation going on because no one can ever say anything directly. Of course, because that would not be very 18... What, that would what, not year, be, what year is it? 1850 Yeah. It would not be proper. Um, and so what What did the other people say happened on the sofa? Just nothing? That they weren't sitting together. Oh, that he was just there the to room. talk about having a party okay. and then left. Also, like, maybe they did sit down on the same couch together. Right. There weren't a lot of furnishings available in Upper Fort Gary. Mm-hmm. There's some other stuff in the testimonies about, like, Ballandin just in her day-to-day. There's one where she's someone's hanging out with her husband and sees a woman come in and he assumes it's, like, an indigenous woman. So he starts speaking to her in Cree until Sarah starts to laugh and is like, it's just me. (laughs) And then one guy that drank too much champagne and gets super sick and she has to help him to his bed. Oh, no. (laughs) So just her being, like, a gracious host and kind of, like, a charming person. Yeah. And... At some point, they do try and figure out where she was the two times she left the party. One was to get rum for her husband. Okay. One was with someone else, and I think it was to check on her kids. I, like, it just, like, must have been so terrible to be like, every time you leave the room, someone's Someone is like, like, I bet this is scandalous. I bet she's gonna go see yeah. that Captain Foss. Because, like, yeah, you might have to leave the room at a party sometimes. She has kids. Yeah. She's got several children. Might have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So, what do you think? Do you think she's having an affair? Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of evidence. <laughs> no, Mrs. It Logan sounds... told Mrs. Cochran that yeah. told me that the German girl said this once isn't doing it for you. No, like 130, no, 170 something years later, yeah. it's it's hard to say. But like, I don't know. It sounds like maybe she had a friend. Yes. At a time when, like, her husband is busy with work. Yeah. The women there don't like her. Yeah, like, that's gotta be tough, right? Yeah. And, like, you know, maybe even a friendship that wasn't socially appropriate. Yeah. Totally. It happens. Yeah. So, after several hours of deliberation, the jury comes back with a guilty verdict towards the defendants. Okay. So, um, the Pellies have to pay 300 pounds. Okay. And the Davidsons have to pay 100 so you remember the thing about waving the, the money under his nose? Yeah. Don't you wish you might have this? Yoink. Yeah, You'll have to it. sue me for it. <laughs> the dividing uh, line in whose side people took when testifying did seem to be one of, like, race. Interesting. So, like, the people that are against Ballandin seem to largely be the, like, white relative newcomers. The people who are supporting Sarah are, like, bun- in Logan, mm-hmm. who were, like, Métis residents of the settlement. To what extent do you think the, like, new Europeans here were just bored? <laughs> oh, I'm sure they were so bored. Like, especially the women. If you're, yeah. like, you know, not really supposed to work, maybe. Yeah. And, like, recreation options are limited to parties and stuff. And you're not supposed to talk to anyone in the area <laughs> except the, like, three other English women there. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure they were bored. They were just like, ooh, let's have a fun little lawsuit. Yeah, let's cause a little problem. <laughs> so, like, the bishop, the reverend, governor Caldwell, the English officers are all English Protestants. 
Um, her defenders are all Métis or had married Indigenous women. The only exception is Adam Tom, who was just, like, a family friend. Okay. His involvement in the case is a little weird. Also, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, even after this, um, people continue to ignore Ballandin. Like, the damage has already been done to her wow. reputation. This trial's not going to help. So, Eden Colville, Colville and his wife arrive in September. Colville is the new um, governor, and he is bewildered by what he has walked into. <laughs> oh, no. I don't think anyone. I, is, bet. I don't think anyone's told him what's going on. I mean, that would be a, an insane thing to tell someone who's just coming in. You're like, by the way. <laughs> There's been a defamation trial. Yeah. <laughs> so, at oh, this no. point, Samson. in September of 1850, John Ballenden is actively ignoring anyone who refused to let their wives speak to Sarah. Okay. So, John is also now shunning people. Yeah. Um, That's the way to stop a shunning. <laughs> shun more people. So, my favorite anecdote from this whole mess does come from Colville, who's writing to George Simpson being like, this is a nightmare. I hate it here. <laughs> um, he describes things as, although the state of things is most unpleasant, though somewhat ludicrous withal. For instance, today the bishop and his sister were calling on us. This is um, Black and Margaret. Um, are the So, Margaret Anderson and whatever Anderson. Um, they're calling on Colville. And in the middle of the visit, I hear a knock at the door. And suspecting who it was, I rushed out and found Mr. and Mrs. Ballenden. I had to cram them into another room till the bishop's visit was over. But as he was then going to see the Pellies, he had to pass through this room. So I had to bolt out and put them in a third room. <laughs> it was altogether like a scene in a farce. <laughs> that is like a scene in a farce. <laughs> it's a slamming doors comedy where these people can't be seen together. I feel like I'm thinking of like Faulty Towers where yeah. they're like, you know, John Cleese is sort of running through all the different rooms. Yep. Yeah. I was going to say the one episode of Frasier where they rent a ski lodge and are all going in and out. Yeah. <laughs> <Shattered> <laughs> rooms. So like things are confusing. Yeah. And no one's talking to anyone. And, like, people can't even be in the same room as each other. No. And, like, Colville seemed aware of the situation enough to be like, I can't let these two interact, so I have yeah. to hide the balance. And I'm assuming he had to go between rooms. That's wild to have to hide the chief factor. <laughs> right? This guy's in charge. Yeah. So there is an uh, overwhelming feeling that William Caldwell had mishandled the case in some way. Hmm. So... Alexander Ross and 500 settlers began to push for Caldwell to be removed from his position. Okay. And Adam Tom. Over this. Over this. Wow. I'm assuming it's like a culmination sure. of other things, but. Yeah. Um, Adam Tom is also removed from his position shortly afterwards. Okay. So Tom is controversial because he was involved in the case before it became a lawsuit. Like mm -hmm. he is investigating beforehand. He's getting statements. He is then the recorder of the case. And then he testifies against okay. the defendants. Hmm. So, like, it is a unusual level of involvement. Yeah. So, he loses his job. And then eventually, Colville replaces Caldwell. Okay. And... Oh, no, that's confusing. Uh, oh, tell me about it. <laughs> um, Colville begins to push for ba the Baladins to be allowed back into society. Okay. And it works. Um, he moves them to Lower Fort Gary at John Baladins' request. This is away from the Pellies. Mm. And... Things kind of mellow out a little bit. Colville believes uh, Ballandin to be innocent. He thinks she's been largely sinned against okay. by the people in the area. But eventually, though, John would have to leave for Scotland for medical treatment. This leaves his wife in the company of just the Colvilles. Their children are uh, mostly grown-ish or going okay. to teen years, and they've all been sent to Scotland for schooling. Oh, okay. So she doesn't have many of her kids left. There's like a, I think her youngest son is still with her. Mm. 
So I'm sure it would have been nice because the Colvilles at least liked Balandin. Yeah. So it would have been a brief period of peace, but then things kick off again in 1851 because Balandin goes to visit Donald Mackenzie. Uh, Foss was staying with him. Okay. So just like incidentally, Foss was in the house. Okay. And this starts- They're going to rekindle their affair. Oh, this starts the rumor again. Oh no. And this time, Dr. Bunn and Adam Tom switch sides. They stop supporting her. They think probably she is actually having an affair. Hmm. Alexander Ross uh, is the only one that, uh, or one of the only ones that still stands with her and says she is the victim of an unrelenting hatred. Wow. There's also a new letter produced, allegedly from Balandin, addressed to my darling Christopher, mm. with like adr- with instructions to meet her someplace. Okay. Um, the Colville or the shunning just begins anew. Like Colville just stops talking to her without any warning. Yeah. And. It's hard to say with the letter what happened there because there's no, it doesn't exist. Right. It just seems to have existed or maybe existed or someone's like, I saw a letter once. Yeah. And said one thing. So ultimately what happens is Valden leaves the fort. She goes to stay with the Cunningham family nearby and then Foss also leaves the colony in 1851. Hmm. So part of the like initial moving might have been deliberate. Colville might have been moving people away from each other. Like, we're going to get Foss out of here. We're going to get the Pellies down south. It's like, you ever do a tour with kids who are just like, <laughs> yes. like two disruptive kids and you have to be like, okay, yep. can you just go stand at the back there and you stand up here yes. by me? We need to separate everyone involved in this conflict. So in July of 1851, John comes back to the colony pretty briefly to settle some affairs and then send the rest of their kids to school in England. And here we have a pretty rare letter from Balandin to William Lane. She talks about how she's sad to part with her son. And then her kids are all staying with Elizabeth Bannatyne in Scotland. Okay. Uh, At some point in 1851 as well, their son Duncan passes away, which I'm sure was hard for both of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um... Throughout all of this, John refuses to divorce Ballenden. <laughs> Apparently, even George Simpson had suggested it. Wow. Okay. And in response to this, Ballenden is transferred to Fort Vancouver. Okay. So he, yeah, I guess. So like the company is retaliating against him, possibly. I mean, I guess, you know, that would have been the easiest thing for him if he had just said like, yeah, maybe. And then, you yeah. know, but I, I guess he was pretty convinced that she was not having an affair. Yeah. So... Yeah, and, and maybe actually liked his wife. I think he liked his wife, yeah. is the thing. He liked his wife and he liked his kids. Huh. What a novelty. So, the transfer to Vancouver was probably deliberate on someone's behalf to, like, separate the couple. I've heard some, like, some theories that this was a, like, punishment for not divorcing. Like, we will keep you hmm. apart. Yeah. It looks bad for us. Um... The thing is that Sarah Ballenden wasn't well enough to travel with him. So she has to stay in a house somewhere else. Like, she couldn't make that journey to Vancouver with him. And her health declined pretty rapidly when living alone. Uh, Some of her friends said that if there was such a thing of dying as a broken heart, she cannot live long. Oh. So after a prolonged period of social isolation and ill health, she moves to Norway House in 1852. Uh, George Barnston and Ellen Takerin, they're like longtime family friends of her father's. And then in 1853, Balanton has a visitor. Her nephew, A.G.B. Bannatyne, has come up. Oh, her defender. Her defender, her nephew. And he has instructions to take Sarah and their youngest son, Alex, to Scotland. Okay. So John had fallen ill and had hoped to retire in Scotland and wanted um, Bannatyne to help bring his family back together. So it isn't just uh, Andrew with him. It's also his wife, Annie. Oh, (laughs) And no, their right. youngest son, and their son, John. Okay. So Annie McDermott is infamous for uh, horse whipping a man. Yeah. A number of years later. Yeah. 
but she takes this journey to Scotland with her husband and his family. We don't know much about any of that, but we just know Annie was there. Nice. I bet she'd be a good person to have on your side. I bet. I bet she would be. <laughs> so from what we, we don't have a whole lot of like writing about this. From what we do know is that they were united very briefly uh, in Scotland. And it seems like they had reconciled and things were okay. But then Balandin catches consumption and dies oh. in the December of 1853. She is 36 years old. Oh no. Wow. So it's not like a happy life for the last number of years. Yeah. Only 36, too. It's young. That's young. And her husband wasn't much older than her, either. Yeah. But they were both, like, the pregnancies took a toll, and I think John being sick in a way, and the stress of everything can't have been easy. Yeah. And also a long boat journey to Scotland. A lot of moving around. A lot, a lot of moving around. And the Foss-Pelly scandal has some really long-lasting social impacts on the colony. Hmm. So mixed-race marriages decline in popularity. The European men would opt to marry Métis women with connections. Hmm. So, like, Bannatine marries Annie McDermott. Yeah. But her father, Andrew, is an extremely wealthy and powerful merchant. Right. He's an independent trader. He's one of the, like, more powerful independent traders in the colony. But then, in 1854, two of the Bounden's daughters, Annie and Lizzie, come back to Red River. They've been at school in Scotland, and like their mother, they were apparently really talented. They could play multiple instruments and could sing and dance. They were taught all of the appropriate skills for an English woman, of, <laughs> of course. course. So they come back to the colony for a little bit, at least. And then by the time we get to the late 1850s, there is a school for women at St. Andrews. And this continued attempt to assimilate women was having a like larger impact on social or family units. Mm-hmm. So Alexander Ross's wife, Sally or Sarah, was indigenous. They have 13 kids. Wow. Which is a lot. Um. Ross himself was also a bit of a racist. Oh, no. Which is like, who wasn't? Yeah. But Ross um, had a pretty firm belief that anyone with mixed blood was genetically inferior. Wow. Which is a wild yeah. thing to say about your 13 children. Yeah. Yeah. And a bit later on, James Ross, one of their sons, had to write to his sister Jemima, chiding her for being embarrassed of their mom. Mm-hmm. So Jemima had been in school learning proper English skills to the point where she now found her uh, mother, who was like a loving mother, but just not trained in the same way she was, mm-hmm. embarrassing to be around. And uh, James had to write to her and be like, so what? Yeah. If she's not like good at sewing. Yeah. <laughs> she was a good mom. That's what matters. Yeah. Oh, that's, so like, that's it's sad. It's fracturing family units in mm-hmm. a really like serious way at this point. And, like, on the whole, the Foss-Pelly scandal isn't, like, a big thing in the event of Red River. It's not, like, a resistance or a big, like, uprising mm-hmm. in any way. But it's this little social scandal that really highlights all of these cracks right. that are starting to grow in Red River and will continue to grow and worsen over the years. Mm-hmm. We are going to uh, tap very quickly into our last episode to finish this one off because okay. Chief Pegwis is still around okay. when this is happening. He's a guest at the settlement in the 1850s. And he was, like, a welcomed guest. He hmm. was the, like, chief of the colony. Yeah. But uh, by 1860, Pegwis was growing dissatisfied with what he saw as a failure to uphold the signed treaties. Uh, so because of this, he has his son write a letter. He dictates it, but he sends it to the uh, Aborigines, Aborigines Protection Society in England, mm-hmm. which is a group that... Uh, began to realize that the government maybe wasn't being nice to indigenous people. Interesting. In the eight, 
in like the 1850s. Ah, I'd like to know more about that. I'm going to look into them. Don't worry. That's interesting. So the letter that he writes to them is then published in the Norwester, which is the local paper in the Red River Colony. Mm Mm-hmm. It reads, I, Pegwis Soto Chief of the Indian Settlement at Red River, wish to make my statement to the Great House across the Great Waters. I and my people have our minds much disturbed by the Hudson's Bay Company because the said company have never arranged with me for our lands. We never sold our lands to said company, nor to the Earl of Selkirk, and yet the said company mark out and sell our lands without our permission. Is this right? I and my people do not take their property from them without giving them great value for it, as furs and other things. And is it right that the said company should take our landed property from us without our permission and without receiving payment for the same? I have asked the said company for payment through their ages, through their agents, and I asked Mr. McTavish the same thing last spring, but I got nothing for my lands. If I were nearer the great house, I would speak much and loud. I and my people are disturbed. And will the great house approve of another fur company being chartered from Canada? Will there be another company for the North and for the South? Will the Great House sanction more hostilities as before when there were two fur companies trading in our country? And will the company and land for five miles on either side of the Great Road be made between this place and Canada without consulting me and my brother chiefs? I speak loud. Listen, we have had enough of all fur companies. Please send us our mechanics and implements to establish our settlements and to secure as reserves. Pegwis. Wow. That's a really good segue into our next episode as well. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> it's all coming together. Yeah. So the letter Pegwis writes sparks a debate in the Norwester between Andrew McDermott, who felt that Pegwis had been, like, misled into thinking he'd been robbed, like someone had gotten his ear and was... Which is not what was happening. Yeah. And a Donald Gunn, who expressed his belief in Indigenous land ownership. Huh. But that's, like, the furthest we get in Red River. There's, like, yeah. a brief fight in the editorial section of the Norwester yeah. about if Pegwis is right or not. I mean, I'm interested... It's, it's interesting to me that they printed that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's all the letter stirs up in Red River. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be another treaty until a decade that's later. True. Yeah, that's funny that, like, this comes up and they're like, no, we don't really want to talk about that. No. <laughs> we're, we're dealing with this other thing. No. And Pegasus will never see this come to fruition. He dies in 1864, about 90 years old. Mm-hmm. So we'll uh, see how all of this shakes out a little bit. Next time. Yep. We're going to talk a lot about the ACC See if these crazy kids can figure things out. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is no. No. (laughs) So uh, join us next week to hear about LDR Goulet. Uh, For further reading our sources, uh, I typed up the entire trial, so I'm going to post that online. Okay, cool. There's going to be some uh, slight typos or some things where I couldn't figure out what the word was, but you can read the trial without having to sort through many, many pages. Of handwriting. You typed it up all from handwriting. Incredible. Uh, it was 32 pages wow. of typing. Okay, very proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, then there'll be uh, pictures on their sources on uh, onegreathistory.wordpress.com. You can check out an additional write-up on the episode in the Winnipeg Free Press. You can follow us on social media at One Great History on Facebook and Instagram and number one great history on Twitter. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash history and get access to loads of fun bonus content, including behind-the-scenes discussions of episodes and whatever else strikes our fancy. Yeah. <laughs> you can check out a write-up uh, for this episode in the Winnipeg Free Press, and we want to thank the Manitoba Historical Society for their support. Mm-hmm.